0: Welcome to the Root Simple Podcast. We're the audio companion to the Root Simple blog, where we cover gardening, home economics, and DIY living. This show is hosted by myself, Eric Knudsen, and Kelly Coyne, who is off this week. Behind the headlines about bee die-offs in recent years is an untold story about the methods of conventional beekeeping. There is a sharp divide between mainstream beekeepers and natural beekeepers. In this episode, we delve deep into this controversy with beekeeper Susan Rudnicki. We recorded this episode in front of a live audience at one of Honey Love's monthly symposiums. Before we get to the discussion, I want to thank our Patreon subscribers Dan F., Heather E., Lynn G., K., Erica R., kelton m garden fork nicholas h and supporters michael w and dutch girl if you'd like to become a patron and make an ongoing pledge to support our podcast and blog you can find a link in the show notes and on the right side of our blog at rootsimple.com and now get ready for controversy as well as an in-depth introduction to natural no treatment beekeeping with beekeeper Susan Rudnicki. Susan, thank you for joining us. And um, probably most people here know who you are, but there's, there's people listening to this podcast who probably don't know who you are. So if you could say a little something about your background and your interest in beekeeping and uh, what exactly you do.
1: I became interested in beekeeping when a, a feral hive moved into my son's treehouse floor. Uh, this was about 10 years ago. <clears throat> then I began thinking about the possibility of using bees, you know, in a in a hive. Someone suggested it to me, so I started to read. And then I joined a uh, a group called the Backwards Beekeepers, um, which was sort of an early iteration of Honey Love. And, and I learned my chops with the Backwards Beekeepers, keeping foundationless bees, rescuing bees, using feral bees, not buying bees, all that good stuff, which appealed to me greatly as an organic gardener. Because the, the foundational philosophy is that you don't treat bees with chemicals and, and you try to interfere with them as, as little as possible.
0: Right now. So thank you again for joining us. And we're, we decided we would talk about all the, the hot, controversial topics, right? So I don't think people outside of beekeeping may not know exactly how crazy it is. It's sort of like politics and religion, Right. Um, So let's just dive right in. The the top one, one you wanted to start with was, um, so uh, why are all those bees dying? Tell me, Susan, why are all those bees dying?
1: I get this question a lot at presentations. Are all the bees really dying? I hear all the bees are dying. Uh, And I tell them that the media is not doing a good job at representing this issue because they're focusing mostly on the industrial model of beekeeping which, granted, is the greater number of hives in the United States and worldwide, but a not good representation of a healthy way to keep bees. So their loss rate of 44% a year doesn't apply to me at all, or a lot of people who are keeping feral survivor stock, which is what I advocate people do and what our club advocates people doing. So I try to help them understand that it's kind of like the political divisions that we just heard about in that it's it's a great bifurcation in the bee world the people who don't treat their bees and keep feral stock and then the people who are buying breeder bees from breeders that manipulate the genetics and are typically raising those bees with chemical treatments that then those bees are reliant on they have to have those chemical treatments or they will die typically from the varroa mite, which is an, uh, an exotic insect, or rather uh, ar- um, arachnid that came from Southeast Asia in the 1990s and is the scourge of the European honeybee worldwide. So they have invented all these chemicals. The chemical companies have invented chemicals that you treat these bees with, and it keeps them relatively healthy, but they still have mite problems that have to be monitored constantly. So you're always doing mite counts. And they still lose their bees. Even when they're treated, they still lose their bees. So that means backyard beekeepers are using genetically modified bees as well as the industrial guys. They're all losing their bees anyway, even when they're treated. And one of the things that's happening, and the reason that's happening, is because now the mites are becoming resistant to the chemical treatment, which tends to happen. We are aware of this in the use of, overuse of, um, antibiotics and bacteria that are showing resistance. And now people are in hospitals and dying of these horrible bacterial infections that can't be treated with any antibiotics. So the same thing is kind of going on with the bees. And so that, that basic question of, are all the bees dying? Well, it depends on which bees you're talking about. Also, I try to tell people that there's more than one kind of bee. Honeybees are just one kind of bee. But they are the ones that we focus on because they're trucked all over the country by the thousands and thousands and thousands of hives to service the crops that we tend to eat, like uh, squash and pears and peaches and nectarines and you know all those fruits that we love to eat and many, many of the vegetables that we love to eat. So it's visible. those Those bees are visible. But they are dying at a very high rate, but it doesn't represent the true picture. And that's what I try to help people understand, that the media is just not telling this story very well.
0: So for us that want to keep bees, one of the... Issues is that the advice is for you know it's kind of aimed at the commercial guys and if you go to a uh, be you know more conventional beekeeping meeting or you follow the advice of the extension service they will tell you you need to treat uh, what do you say to that and why do you think it is that all that university advice and research is You know, definitely on the treatment side.
1: Well, you know, a lot of these questions, just about every question when you really dig comes down to money. (laughs) Somewhere at the bottom there's a money question. It is very hard for people to own feral survivor stock bees because they're just out there in the wild and you go and grab them. In fact, if you remember or have ever read about the history of humans' interaction with the honeybee over thousands of years, pretty much that's the way bees were kept. In the spring, feral bees were caught, put in hives, and grown on. You didn't buy them from somebody. This new capitalistic system of buying everything is is relatively recent history. So try to remember that. And so the researchers that are doing the research are often employed by the very companies that are making the pesticides that the bees are treated with, that are breeding the bees, that are being sold to commercial um, operations that need to have thousands and thousands of hives of very uniform product. It's like McDonald's bees, They want a uniform product that they know what it's going to do, has been genetically selected to express certain traits that humans have decided are important. Things like giving lots of honey, um, laying lots of eggs, Starting queens start laying eggs very early in the year, bigger bees, even the colors of bees. uh, It's been very genetically manipulated. Docility, that's a very important one. Uh, So these are traits that when you select for them, you've got to remember that from a genetic standpoint, when you select for something artificially, you often deselect for something that serves the organism's purpose. So as a result of much of this genetic selection, the bees are actually have a weaker constitution. So I would say, having dug into it a little bit, that much of this um, support from the research institutions, whether it be academic or privately funded, it's tied up with who's funding them. Where are they getting their grants from? Um, they will often dis- dispute that. But I, when I've dug into it, I find that eventually that you dig it up somewhere. Bear is under there somewhere. Um, all the big, Archer's Daniel Midland, the big agricultural entities are, are behind there somewhere.
0: Yeah, well, there's a lot more. So, <laughs> of course, now we're in Africanized bee territory. So this is, you know, uh, kind of roughly half the, the lower half of the U.S., now, uh, when you say keeping feral stock here, this is the other controversial thing, which is that we are keeping Africanized bees, and you say that. So, what do you say to those who find that you know extraordinarily? controversial.
1: Well, one of the justifications for keeping known genetics is what the treaters, I'm going to call them treaters because that's what they are. We're not treaters and they're treaters. So those are the two groups. The treaters say that when you don't keep known genetics, in other words genetics you've purchased and has been selected, you are uh, are inevitably supporting something called a mite bomb, which is bees that aren't treated are automatically spreading mites to everybody else. And secondly, you're possibly spreading around Africanized genetics. And that's the nexus of the killer bee epithet. You've probably heard of the killer bees were an experiment started in Brazil in in 1956 by this very um, intrepid entomologist who was trying to help the Brazilian honey beekeepers up their honey production because they were using using European bees that were used to cool climates. And he thought he would develop a hybrid for them that was more heat tolerant, heat and humid tolerant. So he imported African queens directly from Africa, and unfortunately one of his research assistants inadvertently released 27 queens. They were out, and that was it. The experiment was no longer under human control, and they migrated through all the southern hemisphere countries and all the central Central American countries, and eventually reached the United States. All the while, mixing their genetics with everything they came along in into contact with. So, while it is true that there are, I, I mean, in seven years of beekeeping, I've only had to rehome to someone on a large acreage two hives of bees that I felt were a little too feisty for the urban environment, the Africanization has indisputably conferred or conveyed to feral bees a resistance to the varroa mite. They are very resilient. So therein lies the illogic of the argument that they're spreading mites to those poor breeder bees. (laughs) Because otherwise, how would they survive for 10 years in the side of that house when no one's helping them with treatments? And when we put them into hives, they survive just fine without treatments. It's not those bees that are the mite bombs. It's breeder bees that are mite bombs that abscond and infect the other ones.
0: Okay. Now, given that they're probably not as docile, I don't know if you would agree with that, but I think that, well, we can talk about that. So as... (laughs) Shall we call ourselves Africanized beekeepers? And as Africanized beekeepers, are there different techniques or things that we need to think about in in keeping local bees? There's ways that we would keep them that are different than, say, people north of uh, northern California.
1: Yeah, I've heard that San Francisco is kind of the northern limit on the west coast. And Georgia and Tennessee is the northern limit on the east coast. But by the way, I guess they're doing some genetic analysis all the way up in Connecticut. They're finding that there's some genes that look Africanized. So they're moving around in ways that were unexpected or adapting in ways that were unexpected. I, I wouldn't say that that you have to you, you just need to be mindful of using your smoker properly with the Africanized bees or the feral bees. I would prefer to call them feral survivor stock, because that's what they are. Um, I just helped a a new student with some bees that she got that were obviously breeder bees because they were totally orange. (laughs) And when you take off the lid of their hive, yeah, they just sit there. They just sit there and they don't move around at all. And some people really like bees that are so docile like that that they can work them with no gloves on ever sometimes without a veil but that but the trade off is you have to be mindful that those are bees that are also don't seem to resist pests and disease well so you want to count mites you want to treat them or be observant about treating them you're going to have to decide because it seems that that is kind of that's kind of a differential to be made about Bees that are a little bit more feisty, and I don't mean they're unworkable at all. I mean, I have 34 hives of all feral bees, and they're all workable. Some are slightly more feisty than others, but it's nothing that, that a little bit of smoke, well applied, ad, much in advance, 10 minutes in advance, wait a little bit, and then they're fine. Um, and then I don't count mites, and I don't use foundation. I don't know I will have to do all this stuff that conventional beekeepers have to do. So I think it's a good trade-off, and and certainly something that, that the average beekeeper can learn how to do properly. You just can't be a fool about it working on a sundress. That's not going to work.
0: Yeah, we can't wear shorts, it seems like. It's one you of the differences. Shorts,
1: I do wear shorts fairly often, but I have my veil on.
0: Okay, I, I like g- shorts, even. <laughs> <laughs> that, which is, yeah, that's a no You're not supposed to wear no, no black no. after uh, Memorial Day, right? <laughs> Anyways, uh <laughs> So what other, given there's some responsibilities with the feral stock here, what other responsibilities do you think that, that beginning beekeepers need to think about? Yeah, I know you have some strong feelings about this.
1: Yeah, I, I, it, some really bad experiences early in my beekeeping mentoring um, career has taught me that some people think when they get a hive of bees, they can stick it in the backyard and it's kind of like a garden ornament. Oh, so it has these cute little bees flying in and out. And I don't have to do anything. I just leave them alone. Well, they're going to grow. And when they get growy and crowdy, they get feisty and they can get really pissy. And in the case of one student who did not follow my management precepts, his bees went berserk and went next door and stung the old black dog after he had a shampoo. And then the fire department came and foamed his hives. That wasn't nice. I've had panicked calls from people who I used to to give hives away for free, like swarms and colonies. I would help with cutouts and just give them away for free. And then people would take them off, and then they would not be in touch with me. And they wouldn't examine or inspect on a regular basis, which must be done uh, for six months. And then I get this call saying, the bees are going next door and stinging the lawyer's kids. (laughs) So... You have to be. Ex- you have to be mindful that you need to be educated. That you need a mentor. Ideally, you need to spend many, many hours being in hives of all different kinds, not just one, not just yours. Ideally, other people's hives too, so that you can learn that usually each colony has a different personality.
0: Paul, oh, hold on, Paul, hold on, Paul. We gotta, we gotta get you
2: on, Mike. You had a question.
1: When you speak about frequent checking and, and being part of
2: the beating part of what's going on T- tell us a number for that what do you tell your people
1: you need to learn if it's your hive how fast is your queen laying eggs how fast is the colony growing now some are ridiculously slow and us an inspection every two or three months is about all they're ever going to need so i'm sorry but i can't give you a really hard and fast rule you need to be observant about the first box that they occupy and how fast they fill it if they fill that deep box in 19 days, like a new colony I just got down in Beverly Hills, that's fast. <laughs> so you're going to have to look at them more often. And it's going to have to be probably every three weeks. If they're really slow and it takes them six months to fill one or two deep boxes, that's pretty darn slow better get another one just in case something bad happens because that doesn't sound like a queen is really at the top of her game so that's kind of what it has to be is you have to be observant it helps when you have a mentor to kind of guide you for the observational process of how you make decisions
0: well on the lines of that question as you know we're this, this movement is we're also we're often maligned as quote be havers Um, And I am a little confused about my responsibility in terms of management. So maybe you could walk through... Some of the things that you do, what I'm looking for, am I just Am I just adding boxes or am I manipulating the frames? What's, what's like the, the course of the year for you as a natural beekeeper?
1: Yeah, I, when I'm doing inspections, I always tell my students the first order of the day is determining that you have a viable queen that's doing what she should be doing. You don't have to find the queen. You need to find the evidence of her being there and doing her work, which means finding eggs. Eggs are from zero to four days. So even if you're queenless, you couldn't have been queenless longer than four days, right? Because there's, if there's no eggs, that means she's only been queenless four days. So bee math is a chart that's in Michael Bush's book. You need to learn that. That's the table of emergence times for the three casts of bees. It's a fundamentally important thing you need to know in order to make calculations. And then you need to do inspections looking for eggs first. So typically, I'm going to the brood nest. What's the brood nest? That's the nursery where all the baby bees are being grown. You don't need to look through the honey box. The honey box on top has got honey in it, and it's going to be at the top. Put it to the side. Ideally, don't start inspecting from the top box of the brood box either, because as you do that, you push bees down, and they get more crowded into the lower levels, as well as new foragers are coming in all the time, too. So then you're dealing with a lot of crowding. So just unstack the whole thing. If you're going to go to box number one and look at that, unstack to box number one. But a lot of times I start in two, because that's kind of where the main brood nest is. So four, three, and two. Put them all to the side, in that order. Then start looking. And you want to pull out a frame from the center, because most of the nursery or the baby bees are going to be in the middle of the box, not out at the edges, in the middle of the box. If you verify there's eggs in the first frame, you're done. You're literally done. Put all the boxes back together. Go to the next hive. But a lot of times I like to look at my bees anyway, so I look at the other boxes too. But I don't look at every single frame. I look at mostly the frames in the center. Because there are times when you notice, it seems like every frame is filled. It's the middle of March. Yeah, the queen's laying a lot of eggs, and you're going to need to attend to a potential swarming situation. So take frames out that maybe are solid drone brood. Move those up to box number four. Why? Because the drones can be moved up high like that and not impede the laying area for worker brood in the queen's brood nest. And... Those drones will hatch out pretty much one cycle and then they'll start putting honey in those big cells. They repurpose those big drone cells for honey storage. So the kind of the rule of thumb out and up. Out meaning not out of the hive, but to the outside of boxes and up into the higher levels. So you're looking for brood and eggs. That's your main inspection goal if I if I would
0: So what happens if I find a queen cell?
1: Well, if there's only one, it may be that they're wanting to replace their queen. If there's a whole slew of queen cells along the edges of frames, they are probably in swarm mode. If there are larvae in those cells, they're definitely in swarm in swarm, in swarm uh, mode. If they haven't put larvae in them, maybe you've caught them in time, and you can open up the brood nest and prevent them from swarming. But there's a certain trajectory of swarming that once they've made up their minds, they're going to do it. There's nothing you can do to stop them. And cutting off the queen cells, like the old books used to say and the old timers, they go through there and flick, you know, capped queen cells. They flick them right off. The danger is that they will swarm anyway, and then you've made your hive queenless. So I never do that. If I find that they're going to swarm, I just let them go. But typically you can manage it by keeping the brood nest open. That means empty frame, full frame. Empty frame, full frame in the main part of the brood nest and so it gives the bees more work to do they think oh I've got as Michael Bush calls it I've got a damaged brood nest I need to fill this in so they get to work building more wax
0: okay now a lot of listeners to this uh, podcast live in Mediterranean climates not just Southern California but actually all around the world and um, I'm wondering if there are some things that are unique about keeping bees here like for instance when do you take honey in a Mediterranean climate like Southern California.
1: It's always observational. So this year was really strange because we had so much rain starting in October. And typically I'm taking honey off in January, December, because they've built up a bunch in the fall. And they haven't eaten that much of it because they keep foraging through the winter. But it was raining all winter. It was raining through March. So what instead happened is all that stuff they had stored earlier, they were eating it. So they didn't have any excess honey. And in fact, I didn't harvest any honey until late March. Yeah, and not very much. So it, it's observational. You have to notice what's blooming. And I, I'm sorry to say, but a lot of beekeepers are amazingly ignorant about what's blooming around them. <laughs> not that they don't even know the names, but they don't even see it. So you have to be... And, and I'm not talking about, you know, a little flower here, a little flower there. I'm talking about trees, because trees are a huge source of forage all in one place. Like when the pepper trees come on, which is in September, if they're a huge source of pollen and nectar. And when I've noticed my bees are making wax and honey off of that, it's bright yellow. The wax is yellow, the, the honey is bright yellow. Um, So these things, big trees and big shrubs, represent large sources of forage, and and we ought to be familiar with that stuff. we got to be familiar with it. When the gravilias come on, all the southern hemisphere plants, you want to try to learn about what those are. Because like rosemary blooms in January, rosemary is planted a lot in in California because it's a really tough shrub of many different heights. But those little blue flowers are very attractive to bees, and that's a food source for them in the dead of winter. So... It's observational.
0: Well, I think uh, in the Q&A session, if you have some more technical questions, we can get into that. I wanted to, since a lot of people listening to this probably don't have bees, I wanted to ask about another hot topic, which is dodgy bee removal services. Now, I've heard, I don't know if people know this, but if you call, if you Google locksmith. In Google, you will get like hundreds of dodgy guys who will come out and charge you way more than it would cost to have a legitimate locksmith come out. And I think I've noticed, uh, and Susan has alerted me to this as well, that there is something similar going on with, with beekeepers, that if you just look up in Google... You know, bee removal, some dude comes and, well, I'll let Susan tell some horror stories about what happens when uh, you use Google to find a beekeeper.
1: I, I think, again, this is a reflection of this media hype that this drumbeat, the bees are dying, the bees are dying. Much of the public is very well aware of this. They've read stories over and over and over again. So they're a little sensitized to, oh, I've got bees in my wall, and they, think immediately but the bees are dying I don't want to kill them I want to save them so they do go looking for a, a bee removal person who will save them humanely and live with the best of intentions but they don't know what that looks like and so my job is to help them understand what that looks like and ask questions that get to the bottom of things because a lot of people are being taken advantage of by what I call charlatans in the bee removal world, uh, which are really just exterminators. (laughs) Many of them are are exterminators as well as humane bee removers. Some of them cover up the exterminator part, and they put up a separate website or or link for bee removal. Bee Saver, uh, Green Bee Removal, We Save Bees. The We Save Bees is huge down in Orange County, and they even spread into Texas and Arizona. And I was curious about these guys. Uh, So I called him up and I said, So when you say you save bees, are you framing up the combs from the hives inside the wall? And the guy just did not want to answer me straight. He says, "We, We save the bees. You go on our website, you can see we save the bees. Well, when I go on their website, I see these cardboard boxes covered with bees kind of inside and out like they've got the queen in the box somewhere right and so the flying bees are in the box but every once in a while they screw up and in one corner of the photo you'll see this giant black trash bag heaped with the structures that the bees have made you know the brood and the honeycomb and everything it's just piled up they often they they they're obviously editing that out of most of the pictures but every once in a while in their in their photo essays, they'll mess it up, and there'll be one. And so these guys finally had to admit, well, when we, we try to sometimes. <laughs> we try to sometimes frame it up. But the truth of it is, how do you do six or eight or ten jobs a day and frame it up properly? That's, just not, that's not possible. Proper and humane bee removal means you frame up the combs with, with some support system, and you put them in a box, and that takes time. and and effort and skill and training and these guys are employing a whole team of guys who are going and just really scraping holes out of walls they love to show the before and after they show the before picture when they open the wall and there's the big colony then they show the after picture everything's gone the whole scraped clean they haven't repaired it yet because they often do that, too. And, and they do this at 8 or 10 a day. So they're repairing the hole, they're opening the wall, and they're scraping it all out, and I, you can bet it lasts about an hour. Not, not not possible. I mean, I've had jobs go on. Ray's helped me. It's gone on half a day. <laughs>
0: So what are the questions that a homeowner should ask of, of, of these bee services when they come to, say, remove them from a wall, number one, and maybe two, which I get a lot of these calls too, how do you remove them from a tree?
1: The tree removals are, are difficult because it requires a process called a trap out. And, and, and I, I usually don't try to get too deeply into the technical things. I just say that it takes quite a few visits by the beekeeper to do a trap out. And it takes a lot of resources, and most people don't want to put up with the time and effort on the part of either the homeowner or even the person who knows how to do a trap-out to do it. And the bees can often find another way in, and then you're dealing with that, and, and so they're hard. But the questions people should be asking is, what do you do with the bee structures when you open up my wall? What happens to the comb and the honey and the baby bees? Where do you put that? If they're evasive or they say, oh, well, we just dump it in a box and we take it back to our farm, the be- the babies are going to smother. They can't be stacked like pancakes in a box. So you try to make it as short and simple for the homeowner to ask really pointed questions to get to the heart of really what I'm paying for because a lot of these groups, they're even charging a premium on the poor homeowner to do this, and they're doing nothing really – different than a exterminator except they're not applying pesticides but they're effectively killing the bees it's like I try to help the homeowner understand it I say it's like somebody told you it's time to move so they come to your house they dump all your furniture and everything you own in the back of a dump truck and they put you out in the street and they say go find a new home they understand that so it's your home is being junked that's what's happening to the bees you can't junk their home and expect them to do just as well
0: all right, there's one question I forgot to ask from, uh, from sort of the management perspective, and that is for a new beekeeper, how do you get bees? Do you get packaged bees? Do you collect a swarm? What do you suggest?
1: Now, I suggest reading first, <laughs> finding out if you like to do, would like to do this, find out what's involved. Read a simple book. The one that I um, recommend most commonly is The Idiot's Guide to Beekeeping, which is widely available, it's really cheap, it's very user-friendly in the the way it's written. Now we have um, Rob and Chelsea's book called Save the Bees. So people need to understand that it isn't just a garden ornament. You have to spend some time to get educated and learn what's involved. Also, it's very important. Having 80,000 stinging insects in boxes in your backyard in the urban environment is not the same as not managing your vegetable garden and failing with that. The potential is for danger, and, and, and the worst part is if the media gets hold of some bad situation that you created, then it, all the responsible beekeepers get tarred with that same negative you know, information as well. So you affect the reputations of everyone around you if you do the wrong thing, or you do bad things, I should say. So a a new beekeeper should join a club, a group like this, to help give them support and community and answer answer questions they need to read. And getting a swarm, I think, is the best the best kind of bees you can get yeah although a lot of my students they get their first bees from a cutout I like a cutout because it shows people a hive that's in situ and hasn't been touched by humans so you get to see how they do things when left alone which is very instructive you learn a lot of things about how bees live when you see a wild hive and so it's a great way of learning and you get free bees and you learn how to do cutouts I mean, you learn three things all at once,
0: okay, so what's wrong with package bees? and to explain that to people listening to this package bees, you can buy bees in the mail and you get a, a couple thousand bees in a box, which is a strange experience but uh, what what's wrong with doing that because that's the actually that's the standard advice from the you know uh, extension service people yeah. tell you that's the way you're supposed to do it,
1: yeah well. I just got a call from a guy in Long Beach two days ago who who was very distressed to find that his package bees were throwing their queen out on the ground and attempting to kill her. Because he didn't know, and most people who buy packages don't know, the queens are raised separately from the workers that they are eventually put together with at the last minute and shipped. So those workers... If they don't have outright hostility to that queen, they certainly don't have any fealty to her. So one of the first things that you hear the package beekeepers complain about is, my worker bees superseded my queen, or they replaced her. So as soon as she lays and eggs they replace her. So what have you paid for? You paid for some workers. Really, when you buy a package, what you're paying for is the queen's genetics. You're not paying for the worker's genetics because they don't live that long. So your investment in that queen has been pretty much decided for you by somebody else. The people who really are in charge are the workers. By the way, the queen does not tell everybody what to do. It sounds really nice from our human perspective, but the workers tell the queen what to do. That's how it is. And, and so package bees, while they can be seemingly simple, you dump them into the hive and then they start drawing comb. Uh, there, are, there are inherent problems that most beekeepers are not warned of because it's inconvenient or unpleasant to talk about it. <laughs> and this is not going to happen if you get a swarm. That swarm is dedicated in, to the relationship that they have within their group. And they've all come together. It's, it's quite different. Plus, you didn't have to pay for it. And it's re- resilient. By the way, swarms are a reflection of how strong the mother hive is. You've got to remember that weak hives tend to not swarm. They don't have the resources to dump out extra bees. They hold them all at home. So when you have swarms, it's a sign that, and after swarms, sometimes two or three swarms come from one big mother hive, that's a sign that those are really strong, resilient bees. And I have caught researchers over and over using that word interchangeably with abscond. It is not the same. Absconding bees are bees that are under usually some kind of disease or pest pressure. They leave the hive. Every single bee leaves the hive. They leave behind all the brood, uncared for, and it dies. That's not swarming, right? Swarming is a much more carefully planned process. The bees plant it, and they leave bees behind that take care of the brood that remains and raises those new queens. So, swarming and absconding are not the same thing. But I get researchers all the time telling me, using those terms interchangeably, as if they're the same thing, when they're trying to justify the mite bomb theory, usually.
0: Okay, now, uh, we couldn't do a podcast on controversial topics without touching on what's probably like the the Donald Trump of beekeeping, which is um, the... um, that damn flow hive thingy, right? Do I, do I mention the flow hive? Susan, go. Flow hive.
1: Yeah, the flow hive. I, I hate the thing I have to say. <laughs> Partly because it's made of plastic. And I try, I try to think that the world is full of plastic and we don't need any more. Bees don't like plastic. They don't like to put their wax on plastic. And so they only do it when, they're, when there's nothing else. But I think the bigger problem that I have with the flow hive is it tends to pull in beekeepers who are very fixated on what they're going to get from bees. And that's not why I do bees. What I'm going to get from them is, is really kind of a sideline. I love bees for what they are as social insects and they're, in, they're totally in, inherently interesting nature. And, and a lot of times I, I've got these questions from people who want to know, when will I get my honey? <laughs> And the Flow Hive f- focuses you lot, a lot more, I think, on when you're going to harvest honey because you want to see how that new gadget is going to work. It's very expensive. I think it's 600 bucks for one honey super, which is a medium. And and that mechanism, I haven't seen anyone who's used it for years. I, I wonder how well it performs as far as not getting stuck up with propolis, because the frames are supposed to be cranked open along those seams, uh, along a plastic seam, and then it's supposed to be cranked closed. And I wonder how much it gets gummed up with stuff like propolis and wax so that maybe it doesn't see a well or creates improper bee space within within the hive. And, and it's just a conceit. It's a human conceit. I, I don't really see a need for it. But it I get... Magazine salesmen to my house, when they see the hive sitting over there under the tree, they go, oh, let me ask you about... And I go, I know what you're going to ask me about. <laughs> so it's it's a very popular thing. And some people who are in the conventional world say, well, but but it's increased interest in beekeeping. You know, isn't that good? You've got all these new beekeepers that want to be... Well, I you know, compost bins are really big, too. And I see a lot of them just thrown in the backyard. Because people get very excited about having this notion of you know, fertility and everything, but then it's work. You still have to do all the things with a flow hive that you have to do with a regular Langstroth hive. You still got to inspect the brood nest. You still got to deal with queen problems, everything, all the same things.
0: Before I open it up for questions, are there any other controversial topics that I didn't mention, like vodka versus gin martinis or cirrus <laughs> sucker before Memorial Day? Uh, anything else uh, that I didn't talk about?
1: Yeah, I just, the package bee thing is really, uh, Michael Bush is adamant. The treaters are at the bottom of the issues of why we're having continuing problems. Oh, well, I guess I should say that there has actually been a little bit of interest on the part of the very stolid and old line beekeeping journals and associations to open their minds a little bit to this so-called Darwinian concepts of beekeeping. And the one that did it is Tom Seeley. Okay, why? Because Tom Seeley's associated with Cornell and decades of research into bee behavior, so they can't blow him off. But I did try to submit an article about what we do in L.A. with our feral bees two years ago, and I got it all ready to go and everything, and Mr. Graham of American Beekeeping Journal dismissed it out of hand. Oh, that Susan is just destroying the reputations of all the good beekeepers out there. (laughs) But then Tom, er, Tom Seeley managed to get an article in just in March, American Beekeeping Journal, on Darwinian concepts of beekeeping, which is essentially what I've just spoken to you about today. The adaptation of an organism to selective pressure from diseases and pests is the best way to get resilient stock. When we apply chemicals or we apply a human design fix it to things, it inevitably has consequences, if not sooner later. And we see this in all kinds of stuff, you know, whether we're talking about weeds are resistant to Roundup and now, you know, choking cornfields or, or if it's bees that are not resistant to Varroa and we got to invent another chemical cocktail to try to treat them.
0: You actually sent me a really beautiful Darwin quote, and uh, it goes, We can further understand how it is that domestic races of animals often exhibit an abnormal character as compared with natural species, for they have been modified not for their own benefit, but for that of man. Do you still have conversations with the uh, treaters? Because it seems like this is one of those, you know, very, very divisive things like politics in this country. Do you think there's any hope for a conversation? Are you seeing an opening on that side? Or are they just still a bunch of old, cranky old white men like me?
1: I think there's opening. Because I've been a, a beekeeper just seven years. And one of the first really interesting ones that I saw happen was Randy Oliver. Do you guys know Randy Oliver, the scientific beekeeper? He does a lot of research. He lives up in Grass Valley. When I was first being a beekeeper... I noticed that reading on his website, he was really anti-feral bee. He was really anti-not treating. He was saying, oh yeah, those people who don't treat, then they're sorry because their cute little bees die. And I keep telling them you got to treat and they just buy more bees. However, he's come round. So if you look at his chapter 5 and 6 currently on his website, it's very interesting what he's saying. He's saying things like, we should be paying more attention to that feral stock. It could be the answer for our problems. Heavens, I mean, that's that's the really telling one. Is we should be paying more. Oh, and he talks about um, maybe we've um, altered. Uh, we have manipulated our bee stock too much so that we've caused weakness in the stocks that we have something there's only something like 600 queen lines being used in the commercial bee stock in the united states so there's this thing called a genetic bottleneck because it keeps feeding in on itself more and more weakness is causing like with dogs and cats you know they get well any kind of domestic livestock that's terribly inbred even humans you know the same thing happens you you have things that are recessive pop out and don't and cause disease and, and problems with it. So <clears throat> I'm seeing change in that regard. There was, a, there was a conference in December. I couldn't go to it because it was all the way up in San Francisco. And, and they only let the public participate for three hours after a five-day conference. So if you weren't an invited, they had a name for the thought leaders. Oh, yeah, I hated that word. Thought leaders. I wasn't a thought leader, and lots of other people weren't thought leaders. But you could come for the three hours at the very end where you got to got talk to the thought leaders about what they discussed. And it was called Be Audacious. Be Audacious. There were a lot of people there looking at this whole thing that we've been talking about here about treating and not treating and genetic lines and inbreeding and everything, and... And they were kind of coming around to the idea that yeah we 've put ourselves in this we put ourselves into this corner, and we 're not going to get in this corner by trying to apply technology to it over and over again. Uh, so I had a conversation with this guy named john west he 's a big commercial guy in in the almonds, and he and I were riding back and forth. He says, "You really should come up here, and i said, but yeah but i 'm not a thought leader so but but people like that I think probably wouldn 't have talked to me uh, a while back, but I do. I don't care how big they are. I email them anyway. So, so sometimes they write back. Like Tom Seely is very approachable. If you ever want to ask him a question, you ought to write him. He's very nice.
0: Well, we have a room full of thought leaders here. So perhaps I should um, be a low-rent Donahue and uh, wander out here and uh, see if anyone, anyone have a question for Susan. Yes, back there. Hang on a second. Susan, can you talk a little bit about foundation and no foundation frames?
1: I I have never used foundation. I learned that from Kirk Anderson at Backwards Beekeepers and, and Charles Martin Simon, who's one of his gurus. We got to remember that foundation, again, was a human invention to do something to get the bees to do something that we wanted because we wanted a product from them. And the notion was that, well, they would draw out their comb faster because they would start with a sheet that's impressed with a hexagonal design. But if you've ever seen foundation, the hexagonal design is uniform across the sheet. But if you've ever seen a real comb of honeybees like a wild hive, you see there's small cells and big cells and in-between cells. So they got to fudge it on a foundation, right? They gotta fudge what they really need. They gotta make the walls move out here and squeeze in the walls there. And we have small cell bees, which the wild ones tend to be smaller than the commercial bees. That's a whole nother issue. Small cell versus large cell. They've been bred to be upsized to be five point four to five point nine, which is the size of our drones. And and most commercial foundation is that large cell size. And they've even gone further. They've made the foundation out of plastic which bees hate. They absolutely hate it. So I've had to um, rehab hives that have plastic foundation in them. The bees have made a separate comb out from the face of that plastic foundation with bee space that they can walk behind it just to get away from it. That's what they'll do sometimes. Not always, but they will. So giving them foundationless allows them to put the drone cells where they want it and the honey cells and, and the worker bee cells in the center of the frame They can make it the way they want it, and thats I I think that's better. There's also an issue with contamination. Wax Foundation has something like 144 different chemicals that have been researched and found to be present in Wax Foundation. From all the residues that the commercial guys have put in their hives, and all the forage that those commercial bees have picked up, it gets accumulated in the wax, which is a fatty product. Remember, the chemicals and pesticides are also fatty, so they are attracted to each other. So why put poison in your hive from the get-go?
0: Anyone else? Paul.
2: Can I ask four questions? Then they don't have to <laughs> walk across the room. Um, Eric, it's for you. Um, another just a little more on on the frequency i'm I'm just worried uh, i' no, i understand that after a while you'll probably understand uh, you'll you'll know how the how frequently you want to see it how do you start out is it uh, every two weeks or less? I have a theory about car car repairs that the more you look in the car the more you'll fix it um, three more questions uh size he's going to take notes uh, size of the opening uh and i, I the this yes yes how do you recommend and how do you determine that do you, do you use do you, how do you feel about excluders queen excluders and how do you feel about the ventilation um, uh, bottom boards
1: okay the first one um, when you put a new swarm into a box with frames don't put it in there without frames they'll make mischief right away um, I recommend you look in three days don't be going three weeks if they make crooked comb and you've waited three weeks, you're going to have a big mess. Now, if they do it straight, you got away with murder, but um, I would look in three days. They're not going to fly off just because you're looking in there, but you want to see that they're drawing straight. So remember with foundation foundationless, we've got to have a comb guide which is a little nubbin or some kind of a protrusion on the underside of the top bar. It can be a popsicle stick. It can be a frame that's purchased pre-made for foundationless. does not be coated with wax. It can be bare. The bees don't care. But it's got to have a comb guide. You can't put frames in there that are flat on the underside of the top bar because then they will often put two combs on the same bar. And then you got a mess. The size of the entrance... I like reduced entrances because I have these little doors on my entrances that can be turned like a turnstile to close the hive if I want to move it. And it's just convenient. They don't care. They don't care if it's a small entrance. They don't need the full entrance, in other words. They can be, it can be only this wide. Nah, it, my entrances are about like that. And, and they do just fine with it. I do like screen bottom boards, although I've learned to like them because I realized when I had some comb that melted out of the frames in a hot summer and it was draining out on the ground because there was not enough ventilation in the hives in a very sunny spot, it can't hurt. They can always use a little more ventilation. And in the beach where I live, I get, I get problems with mildew growing underneath the, the lid in the wintertime when there's a lot of moisture in the air. So be, it's bad for bees to be in too moist of an environment. Certainly water dripping down on the top bars is not good either. So screen bottom boards are really nice. And if you want to close it, you can always slide in that little plastic board that they give you for counting mites on the sticky board. You know, it serves this purpose of closing it if you want to. Or you can close it halfway, whatever you want to do. And then... Um, excluders? I do not believe in excluders. The reason is because, again, when it goes back to observing a wild hive, they have everything very organized. The honey is always at the top. in a In a Langstroth stack of boxes, the honey boxes are in the top. They uh, they almost never put a lot of honey down in the bottom box. I've had one do it, which is a rule breaker. But but in general, all the honey boxes are up above the solid honey boxes. Now, on each frame which you're not going to be taking anyway when it's got brood, they have a zone of honey. That's for them to eat. That's theirs. Even on the outside of each box, remember, usually the last frame or two is also honey. That's for insulation. That insulative factor that they need to control the thermodynamics of the hive inside the, the, the brood nest zone. So why put an excluder on there? I, you know, Michael Bush is the one who talks about unlimited brood nest. And that's what I'm following. Unlimited broodnates means you've got a big core of workers doing everything. That gives resilience to the hive. I've had one hive poisoned twice. That means they got into something in somebody's yard where they were poisoned, and about two-thirds of them died right in front of the hive. It was horrible. But they were three deep boxes. They were a big hive to begin with. So My theory is that one reason they survived was because they were so big to begin with. They could afford to lose that many and still come back because they did come back. And so excluders also, they traumatize the worker bees that have to go through them in terms of ripping at their wings. Sometimes even conventional guys will talk about that. They'll say, yeah, it's a little tough on the workers because they have to go through that that excluder every time they want to deposit nectar, which is usually actually a house bee, not a forager. The house bee is the one that takes the nectar from the forager, who then turns around and goes back out. But those house bees go in and out through that excluder, and and it kind of rakes on them. I have we have a a hive that is well, Sebes can verify. We have a really obscure kind of hive that draws really thick comb, and it makes it almost impossible for us to get in there and inspect. So we're Sort of like, hey guys, how's it going from the outside? And it makes it, it's because if we get in there, we're ripping up comb in order to inspect. And I'm wondering if there's something we can do to help prevent that. But it's, it's their nature, it's how they're so doing it. Are you saying that. that in the brood nest, they're drawing in every the, in the frame, brood nest? every single every level that we look at? And your spacing is correct. And it's, they're all, and all the frames are tied up. together. Yep. Uh huh. Completely. Uh huh. It's not even cross cut. It's Uh not cross comb. It's that zone like at the top that's about this deep, and it's really thick. Very. Well, you know, if it were my hive, I would move some of the brood up. I would open up the brood nest. You're going to have to look down in there and see which one of those is the least fat. (laughs) (laughs) And start somewhere. Because as soon as you pull one frame out, now you've created some space you can work with everything else. Mm -hmm. And if it's going to rip that one comb, you've only ripped one but you gotta start somewhere. Right. Um, but it sounds to me like bees do this for a reason of efficiency. It's easier to draw one cell super deep and store nectar in it than it is to draw two smaller cells, right? It takes less material. So some bees tend to do that more than others. If it's all in the honey box, I don't care anyway, because I will take that, that super, or if it's a deep, I'll take it home, flip it over, take the frames off one by one peeling them off like layers of a cake Mm -hmm. and harvest them that way so it doesn't really matter but when it is in the brood nest yeah it can create a problem but i do find when i'm doing inspections there's sometimes zones where because of the way they've drawn the comb one part is bulging out i take the (coughs) this is called frosting the cake i take my hive tool And I just smooth that face. I dip the hive tool down in from the top bar end and just smooth the face of it back. If you do it that way, it kind of seals it. If you go and slice it off, thinking I want to make it skinnier, it's going to make a big mess and drip a lot of nectar all over the place. But the smoothing or frosting the cake motion just pushes it back. And a lot of times they'll, they'll fix it up and they won't keep drawing it out. It'll usually stay back. But, but smooth it off. And it, even the first frame, the one you want to take out and start dealing with this whole thing, that's how you can get started. Smooth the cake, frosting thing, I see. And, and then get that first bar out. And, okay. and hang it on a frame hanger. I really, really advocate frame hangers, guys. A frame perch on the side of your, of your hive box. Setting them on the ground invites so much trouble. You get ants all over it, you get dirt kicked in it, and the first time you turn it a little too far to the to the horizontal, it's falling out on the ground and breaking. So and or you're squishing bees. Yeah. Frame hangers are real I really, really like them.
3: Susan, I just became aware that there are eight frame boxes. And if I had known about that, I think I might have started with eight frame boxes, because eight frames is just a lot easier to move. They're just not as heavy. Do you have any thoughts about 8 frames as opposed to 10 frames for beginners? Mediums
1: and deeps. Um, Both
3: in mediums and deeps.
1: Yeah. I've I had I have a new student in Culver City who has 8 frames and I've had students in the past that have 8 frames and I've had one. This is one thing that I find a problem with them. For some reason they seem to be made too wide. Not enough that you can get 9 frames in those boxes but that the gap on either side of eight frames is too wide. And every time the bees start making fins on the last frame to extend to the wall, or they make double combs. So the only solution to that is got to put a, a, add a layer to the inside of the wall, shim it out so that it's narrower. Because I don't know why this happens. They're like that. They're all like that. <laughs> You can almost get nine, and I and actually in in uh, Kareem's um, hive yesterday, one of the boxes accepted nine. Now that's because something was going on with the frames; they were just a tiny bit narrower, and they fit down in there, or the box was tiny bit wider, or the walls were a tiny bit skinnier, something. But why? I don't know why it's like that. But so Susan,
3: it, if you if we can solve that problem, yeah. do you think it is a good a yeah. good starter? An yeah, idea for I, I don't
1: like them because I think they fill up so dang fast. If you have a bee, a queen that's laying a lot she just fills that box so dang fast especially if it's a medium but that that's fine. I mean they're fine for you if you think that makes a big difference. I never lift a whole box anyway although I do lift a 10 frame um, super of honey but never a deep box. I take out if I'm harvesting a deep box of honey I take it out frame by frame and put that to the side to harvest
3: well i'm thinking of people in this group uh, yeah. some women in this group who've called me to help them because there's yeah. just no way they can right. lift a 10 frame right. medium let right. alone a 10 frame deep and right. so it seemed like a good compromise perhaps for it a, is a in woman. terms
1: of the the weight issue if you're lifting boxes but you have to be mindful that your bees are going to build faster than a 10 framer it makes a difference there's something like five thousand cells on each side of a medium frame.
4: Thank you. Anyone else? Uh, yeah. <clears throat> a- admittedly, I only have a fringe uh, uh, relationship with the uh, treatment uh, beekeeping world. I kind of a just a lurker and a looker. But uh, um, I'm wondering about two things. One is the uh, recent development of using quote-unquote organic treatments like a. Uh, Lavender oil or something that sounds very bath and body workshop, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> or um, the other thing about referring to it as medicine for the bees, and that's just semantics. Uh, still using the same chemicals, but um, I'm just wondering your thoughts on on that change in the treatment-free world to try and, and be more accessible.
1: Well, you know, formic acid is the one that kind of is, they're trying to make it straddle that, divide between treatment and organic and because they say well ants have formic acid you know in them and um, the point is bees that are being treated are not not going on their own volition to either practice hygienic behavior which means pulling out infected pupa or cleaning self grooming adult mites off of bees. Those are called the phoretic stage when you actually see the mite on an adult bee. The actual damage, the biggest damage from mites comes from when the mite is in its early, before before it pupates, when it's in the early stage inside the cell with the baby bee when she's capped. And feeding on her, it transmits... Um, vectored, they're called vectored diseases. Just the way a mosquito, when he bites you, if he's got malaria, you're going to get malaria. It's a vector. That mosquito is a vector of that disease. So the disease doesn't hurt the mosquito, but it hurts you. The disease doesn't hurt the emerging varroa mite, but it hurts the baby bee, and they get what's called deformed wing virus. And then there's um, acute paralytic virus, and then there's parasitic mite syndrome, which is kind of a whole plethora of. Of bad um, effects to the young bees, so when we apply things though to tamp down the varroa, then the bees don't have to rely on either their own immune response or their own behavioral response to recognizing that they have something going on, and and to me that's weakening them. It's not building resilience, but it's but it's trying to control something and I don't know what what the goal is with treating if it's meaning no mites at all I kind of think it is but you never really get to that stage because there's always some more being generated and that's the case in feral hives there's some mites in there all the time I see mites every once in a while but that's a, a sign that The bees have it under control. So I don't think this invention of thymol and formic acid and, you know, these so-called, they call them soft treatments because they're not apivar or one of those other ones, cumafos. By the way, those chemicals have three negative things that I can think of right out of the way. It affects the queen's fertility. She doesn't last as long. She doesn't lay as good eggs. She doesn't lay as many eggs. It affects the ability of the drones to navigate. And it's pretty important for them to be able to go in and come back. It affects the development of the baby brood, the brood bees development, or it's like feeding poison to your children. When they're in their most vulnerable developmental period, they're getting chemicals.
2: How do you feel about top bar hives?
1: I I like top bar hives. I don't have one. they're they're good for folks that have limited strength because you only lift one bar at a time and you never lift boxes because all the bars that the bees are living on are in one horizontal hive so the only thing you're lifting is one bar with a comb on it at a time the other thing is that when you take a bar out that's the only light that's going down in the colony because the top bars are tight together when you take a Langstroth box apart, you take the box off, and immediately there's light going down between every bar because there's that little space like that. And it can make the bees a little more fussy. So people talk about top bar hives being a little bit more quiet. Um, the limitation on top bars is, remember, there's no way to add to it. Once the box box is filled, you've got to have another top bar hive if you're going to continue. I have seen some intrepid people make... Um, super boxes to go on top (laughs) it can't i think it can be done but not that many people do it and there's a good book by uh, les crowder is the acknowledged guru of top bar beekeeping his book uh, top bar beekeeping is out there he's a really nice guy from new mexico very wise and uh, uses feral bees doesn't treat
3: one advantage of top bars is your neighbors may not know you have bees
1: yeah (laughs) doesn't look like a hive they call them coffin hives because they look like coffins.
3: Anyone else? All
0: right. Well, um, I want to thank Susan for being here at Honey Love, but also for being on the Root Simple Podcast. And Susan, do you have a website or a way that people can contact you if they know you don't want to be contacted? <laughs> well, I'm really no, even the Honey Love lawyers? Really Hold on.
1: <laughs> I'm very low tech. My, my sons keep telling me I need a website. And... But I haven't had one yet. I don't have one. I have business cards.
0: <laughs> you have a f- well. You don't give your phone number. <laughs> Listen,
1: up. I just got a cell phone six months ago. Oh, good for you! My entire well, life, I never had one until six months ago.
0: Look out! It's addictive. I know. Yeah, it's like crack <laughs> cocaine. Um, well, uh, thank you, Susan, very much. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Sebs, do you want to say something about honey love for the Root Simple podcast just before we conclude? Uh, what is honey love, and how how can people find out more about it?
4: Uh, go to www.honeylove.org and we are an active, benevolent, local, LA based um, nonprofit and we help inspire and educate new urban beekeepers. We want 600 people with one hive each in their backyard instead of one person with 600 hives.
0: Great. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Susan. <laughs> That was Susan Rudnicki. Thanks again to Honey Love and to everyone who participated in the question and answer session. For more information about Honey Love, visit honeylove.org. Thanks again to our Patreon subscribers for supporting this podcast. If you got an opinion about what we talked about in this show, leave a comment on our blog at rootsimple.com. You can also call us at 213-537-2591 or send us an email at rootsimple at gmail.com. We are RootSimple on Twitter. You can have our podcasts automatically downloaded for free by subscribing in the iTunes Store or on Stitcher. And if you like what you hear, please share this podcast in social media. You can support the Root Simple podcast through our Patreon campaign or through a one-time PayPal donation. You can find those links on the right side of our blog, which is rootsimple.com. You can also purchase one of our books through the Amazon links on our website. Our theme music is by Dr. Frankenstein. Thank you for listening.